0: welcome to season three of the yoga therapy hour podcast my name is amy wheeler and i'm your host we are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy and we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two. And you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called optimal state with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video. Maybe you want to use it for one of your trainings. These videos on YouTube will be there for you to use for free we would love your support we have opened up a patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow you can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you and we'd love for you to visit the patreon page which is called optimal state and yoga therapy hour podcast so let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast welcome today's interview is with someone i have long admired and was looking forward to meeting today and it it proved to be everything that i had imagined and hoped and that is with acharya shunya who is the first woman in her Vedic lineage from India to be chosen by her grandfather to lead the lineage going forward. And I was kind of stunned during the interview at the suffering that she has endured throughout her life on on many levels and how she has basically used that suffering to become more sovereign. Sovereign to know who she is, to know why she's here, to take that suffering and allow it to be transformed into feminine empowerment, to work to uproot the patriarchy, both in men and women and non-binary people, and those patriarchal ideas. And I'm a little hesitant to, to say this, because I I don't want to exclude anyone. But I also think it's very important to point out that when I began this podcast, it was in the service of women like Acharya Shunya that I wanted to bring our voices to the world. And of course, we've also had men on the podcast. But most of the men that we've had on the podcast have really embraced their, their feminine power, frankly. And so this was a big day for me to find such a sovereign woman, just completely grounded in her own being with no apology, not in a way that she is creating violence in the world or excluding people, just the opposite. But to have someone so embodied in her own sense of self, self with a capital S, knowing that she is here in the world for a reason and and she's here to help other women and people interested in feminine empowerment help us come forward to do our work without apology in the world. So I have to tell you, this interview kind of rocked my world. I'm feeling a little bit tender and vulnerable after talking with her. I feel like I just want to go be quiet for the rest of the day and really take in what she talked about today, which is learning to respect yourself as a woman, learning to put yourself first when needed, learning to not allow anyone else to disrespect you. You have options. You have things that you can do when you're in those situations where you're feeling abandoned or disrespected or unheard. And the three goddesses that she talks about in her new book, Roar Like a Goddess, they give us a lot of options to really embody our feminine power. So I introduce you to this amazing woman who has really suffered in this life and is now showing us how to come forth and be completely true to ourselves, showing us how to not abandon ourselves. I think this is what I'm doing with a lot of the women I'm working with in in yoga therapy. This is the work. So enjoy and let us know how you feel afterwards. Go to our Facebook page called the Yoga Therapy Hour Facebook group and join that group and give us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you're thinking about the different podcasts. I am just feeling so grateful for this opportunity to meet Acharya Shunya and also introduce her to any listeners who maybe haven't read her books or taken her classes. So welcome, Acharya Shunya. So nice to have you here.
1: Thank you, Amy. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Hmm. I wanted to start with just a, a short, I guess you maybe you'd call it a poem that i cherish out of your book called the sovereign self claim your inner joy and freedom with the empowering wisdom of the vedas upanishads and bhagavad-gita which came out a couple of years ago and i think you took many many years to condense these ideas and then three years to write the book i understand yes so these these words just touched me. I actually put them on a picture and framed it, and I have it on my, on my wall. I remember I am made of the tapestry of God. I shine from the same light the stars shine forth. I am the softness and gentleness of the flowers. I am the peace that abounds in the morning dawn. I wish to be one one with the divine. I seek rest, restfulness in my own self." Hmm. Hmm. So I'm not sure where we should begin. We didn't make a, a big formal plan. But I'm really interested in the fact that you are the first woman in your lineage and I think this lineage goes back uh, how many? Almost a thousand years? Two thousand. We go back to the Vedas. Two thousand years. I'm pulling up your website for people to see. We have both a visual version of the podcast on YouTube, and the website is www.acharyashunya.com and then we also have the audio version. So please tell me Shunya, about being the first feminine leader of an unbroken wisdom lineage from India. I'm just in awe.
1: When you're a child, you don't know how you're different, but how you're meant to be different to serve humanity and to evolve in consciousness is already pre-planned by a divine greatness, a divine intelligence. Perhaps that is why Amy, I was born in this illustrious family. And my grandfather, great grandfather, my father, these are all very well known personalities in India and going back further. My great grandfather composed the Adi Bhagavad Gita, which is an 84 verse version of the Gita, which is considered by many as the original Gita, Adi means the original. It was based upon uh, palm leaf manuscripts found in India and the Bali Islands, and also on copper plates. And so my great-grandfather, Bade Baba Shanti Prakash, was asked to edit and present it to the world because he was such a great Sanskrit scholar. My grandfather addressed thousands and thousands of people in satsang or spiritual discourse daily. My father, who is not here, on this uh, website but he, because he's alive and well in his 90s, mm-hmm. but he's a scholar of dharma, a playwright, an opinion maker, and he has been awarded with the highest civilian awards in India for his literary contribution, which is uh, taking more and more people towards the light of truth, not religion per se, but to the light of truth. I am their daughter. And I was chosen when I was very young, at the age of nine, by my grandfather, the head of the lineage, to be the next lineage head. And everybody kept quiet. They thought maybe I'm his favorite grandchild. But he knew that one day I'll be conversing with you and sharing this story. Because amongst a gaggle full of a sister, a couple of male cousins, his disciples who were all male, I was chosen.
0: Can yes. I interrupt? I'm just so curious this age nine did they age tell nine. you did you i you oh, probably we, couldn't understand, but were you aware that you were chosen?
1: Yes, because I went through a ceremony because i but I didn't know what's what chosen means. Mm. oh, you felt important. <laughs> I didn't know what it means and then it was life was back to normal and i went to regular school and studied shakespeare and biology and organic chemistry and algebra and i went to the vedic school of my grandfather the gurukulam where i studied the vedic teachings ayurveda yoga advaita from the upanishads and then we were believers of the god in any form feminine, masculine, mixed gender, and ultimately formless and boundless consciousness. But we had temple of Shiva and Devi, God, the goddess, in our own home. It still exists, my home, in ancient India in the holy city of Ayodhya. And so I grew up like loving the goddess and Lord Shiva. And this all became part of my life until I got married. The marriage fell apart. It was a big shameful thing to happen to a woman in India in the 90s, 80s, and then that too to a spiritual teacher. She should know better. She should, she should somehow be above all issues and you know, and walk on air and somehow sort it all out. And so it was almost a question mark on my spiritual integrity, on my ability. If I can't hold a man. Can I really hold the knowledge? Can I achieve mukti or moksha, liberation, <laughs> question mark? And that's when Baba's teachings, I call my teacher Baba, which means loving word, which means grandfather plus uh, elder. Baba's teachings, which were up till now like seeds It was really, Amy, in the darkness that followed where everybody questioned my integrity, my authority, my capacity, that those seeds became that tall tree that I am today. I bend with the winds, but I cannot be uprooted anymore. I cannot, my presence cannot be questioned anymore. Mm. And that is why I feel like my darkness bothered me as much as my light. The lineage was like a a soil, and then I grew out of it.
0: (laughs) And how old were you when you went through this difficult time? I was in my early to mid-20s, yeah. Because I had heard that from about 24 to 40, you sat and listened you didn't really go out and do a lot of teaching and gather all these students that you really were were internally focused. Is that accurate? Yes, it was, because through the difficulties of my
1: marriage, which took away my self-confidence, and then unlike in, in the West where you just have a clear divorce and you're done you know as an indian woman i didn't know what are my imperatives what are my options mm. and so i was in this clouded state of i'm not in the marriage but i am in the marriage and so that's when i went back to my learning back to meditation back to finding my voice and thereafter once even i was You know, I was not in that relationship. I was without a relationship. Then I found my current partner, who's uh, who's my best friend and you know supporter of my work and a co-teacher with me because he teaches Ayurvedic cooking, Chef Sanjay. My life changed, and I had all the support uh, from a partner that I had deserved from day one. I was getting many years later, but I didn't still go back there and begin teaching because. What had come up for me had to be addressed. And the teachings that Baba gave me of being sovereign was not about just a declaration. It was about an inner experience. Today, I feel sovereign. That is why I can write the book, Sovereign Self, and I can talk about it. And I can be unapologetic about the time when I was non-sovereign, because now I can be so kind towards that part of me, because I know it was not all of me. But back then, I was still muddled. And one thing that people from the tradition do is we don't go out there quickly to, you know, become, fashion ourselves as teachers. Students find us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world opens the doors for you to become a teacher. And it just so happened that around my age 40, people started asking me, like again and again, When are you teaching? I heard you for five minutes talk to someone in the gallery there, and I want to study with you. Like things like that started happening. Or I met you in the bookshop, and you just looked at me, and I knew you're my teacher. Please Mm -hmm. teach me. (laughs) These people are still with me (laughs) learning. Wow. You know, and then I knew that, oh, I've ripened. I've ripened. And I ripened on the tree of my lineage to become a fruit and lay more, to to become a forest down the road with my seeds. And really, it just happened that way, in a very organic, kind of slow
0: way, Amy. That's so beautiful. I think it's so different than most of the teachers of yoga, sadly, that it's almost like a rock star status, and there's a lot of rajas in the mind to keep the, the the wheel going and pushing students through the system it just sounds so different it sounds like you did your work and at some point as you said that the students arrived yeah if you remember in um in
1: sovereign self i've talked about if you carry your dharma then the dharma carries you at some point Hmm. So I was doing the work within me and then the work began to carry me. Yeah, there's a satisfaction, there's a wholeness there, there's a quietness there. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I'm a rock star, if I'm ever going to be one. (laughs) But I think I feel quite filled with you know, peace and joy. I feel like a rock star inside me. Mm, Yeah. Which I didn't feel a long time ago when I went through all the challenges and I lost my way and
0: yeah. Your Mm -hmm. your lineage must be quite progressive. Number one, to choose you. Mm -hmm. And then number two, to stand by you and continue to support you as the leader of the tradition through this difficult time. Would you say it's a very progressive lineage?
1: I would say so. Especially my, my great-grandfather began opening his satsangs to women. So we have a rare photo of women sitting in the satsang. But, but my great-grandfather was giving a satsang by the riverbank, but they were sitting like huddled up separately. You know,
0: mm.
1: By the time it was my grandfather's turn, he actually, but my great-grandfather did something. I'm very proud of him. He opened, uh, he allowed for some students of the lower caste to to join the Gurukulam, uh, even if they were, because they were so talented and so dedicated. And that kind of brought some furrowed brows towards our lineage and uh, some criticism. But these were male students, not females. Females were allowed to view these teachings from a distance. But then when my grandfather came along, um, was it 1965, he had already opened the Atna Vidya Sadhan, which openly accepted male and female children to study, as well as children of different, different castes. And in his satsangs, for the first time I saw non-Indians sitting there and I was like just Mm. looking at them because they look different from me. Little did I know that our hearts are the same. And then I discovered that so my by the time my grandfather came along he was already very progressive and he really lived all, all my both my teachers and my father really lived the teachings of oneness and equality and i remember this australian student who stayed with us for a long time like maybe 3 weeks and uh, she stayed in the outer rooms of our big house and she was helping my grandmother and mother cook. And she was like a daughter of the family. And then she played with us. You know, that's when I started becoming familiar with that Vasudeva Kutumbakam, the world is one family. I saw it happen with me. I also saw that um, there were people um, they were people from different religions who would sometimes come for a discourse or be invited to listen to my grandfather's, my teacher's, non-dual Advaita discourse. The, the truth that Ekam Sattvi Praha all religions lead to that one truth. Now, this was like, I was seeing it. Mm. It was not just a talk, a discussion, and then we become all closed within us. We were living that truth. So by the time I grew up, that progressive spirit was what I was carrying, what I'd inherited. And my family, because they were, what happened was Amy, that I lost the women in my life. My grandmother, my mother, my only sister they all died early. For Mm. various reasons. So I kind of grew up with the men. And the men that I grew up with had large hearts, but they were not that communicative on emotional matters. Mm. So when I was alone and 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 struggling, I didn't have I had progressive subspace but i didn't have the emotional nurturing around it. it it but it was not cruel either it was just like the way sometimes a lot of women would say i wish my man would just talk to me mm. and not just make me a cup of coffee <laughs> they just talk to me
0: <laughs> the love language of the love language
1: <laughs> the woman language you know in india when a woman is when a woman is scared in the villages she goes to a woman's circle and it brings tears to my eyes and she sits in the center and she cries and all the women huddle around her and cry. They just cry together mm. and it's so healing and I think I needed that. So what I did was then I'm on the world stage, I cry, I laugh and I create a a huddle circle where we can be in grief and in transcendence of that grief together. I can bring my lineage and it's beauty because it is my grandfather, it is my great-grandfather, it is my father who told me that Shunya, you may be broken, but you're invincible. Mm-hmm. You may be caught up in your shadow, but you have so much light you can't even imagine. And they kept that light on for me And whenever they looked at me, they never saw me like, oh, she fell down. They always saw me as, wow, what are you going to do next in the world? And that, because you can write your own script because this pain has not happened to you. It has happened for you. Mm -hmm. These difficult circumstances are beautifully orchestrated by you yourself to la la la, shine over them. (laughs) And, And I'm glad they did that and and then i brought my feminine nature to it and now i'm that unique teacher which is partly masculine (laughs) partly with my knowledge and feminine in my expression you know you might have seen that in yes
0: yes a beautiful marriage of of the two and i can't help but wonder it sounds like you had support within your own family and lineage but what about the patriarchy in the rest of India? How did they accept or not accept your light shining so brightly? They rejected me.
1: Mm. And even the distant relative network rejected me because mine was probably the first marriage in my family that had not worked out in thousands of years. And
0: in mm.
1: and, and India in general, marriages work out or they are made to work out. And I was the change bearer in my lineage, in my community. And, and so we tend to look towards being told, you know, we don't want rejection. We don't want to be told that and we want to be supported. And I didn't get that language. So that's what became the fodder for me to not only accept myself radically and seek permission for who I am, not from people, but from my own ancient yogic Vedic scriptures, which are so progressive. Right. And that's why, as you know, I have now written and it's about to be released, my latest newest book, Roar Like a Goddess. It's all about how to deal not only with patriarchy outside us, but any internalized patriarchy in the form of self-limiting beliefs or internalized shame, internalized tendency to apologize and explain too much. Because I found that patriarchy is a demon that doesn't live just in India. It lives worldwide. (laughs) And it's not just a feudal experience of phenomena, it's found in the most modern cutting edge corridors of technology and media and everywhere. And then I wrote a book about, you know, it begins with what's the woman's voice? Is it seductive? Is it manipulative? Because they, they are often told we're seductive or manipulative. Are we nags? Mm. Do we overexplain ourselves? Or do we just roar with conviction and courage? And we let the forest know we're here you know so
0: a feminine empowerment a feminine empowerment book
1: from a feminine role models feminist role models which are durga lakshmi saraswati so that explains why I roared like a goddess because when I went back into the mythology, because I'm a scriptural nerd and I go into each word of those scriptures, not just on what people are telling other people, which are more patriarchal versions of the stories, mm. but you actually go into the Devi Mahatmya, you go into the Devi Upanishad, you go there and you find that, oh my God, these women are bold and empowered and they're so comfortable with their feminine side, their beauty, their sexuality, and at the same time they're empowered and, and equal. And then you go into the Vedic society, which gave which gave birth to yoga, Ayurveda, Advaita, and these traditions. And the Vedic society says, even for God, there is a verse which I quote in my book, which says how God how consciousness is God and consciousness becomes in whatever body it goes into, male, female, transgender, mixed gender, but God remains God. Conscious Mm -hmm. remains consciousness. It's such a big shout out for equality amongst all binary and non-binary genders. It talks about Ardhanarishwara, the God, which is half male, half female, Shiva Shakti combined. It talks about how women should lead armies, how women should drive, navigate ships, how women should become either spiritual teachers uh, or, or become domestic goddesses or be a blend of both. So we have all those permissions right there. And then I remember people emailing me even until recently, well, you're a woman. How come you teach Vedas? Uh, you know, this belongs to the males. Or how come we have no books authored by yoginis in the ancient time and they forget that, you know, Yajna wife was a co-author of Yogi right, right. or or Maitri was, you know, co-teaching with her partner. So if you choose a narrative that is purely um, masculine mindset, androcentric, that's fine. But there are, there are strong, bold, feminine teachers, feminine goddesses, feminine heroines like who went to war, like Lakshmi Bai and countless others who we can't forget. And then I looked at the world culture and I found what are known as the badass, you know, I'm quoting an article on badass Mongoloid women or badass mm. African women. And these were ancient women whose remains or um, anthropological information is available of how they were as powerful as men until recently. So then I even talk about, you know, our American heroines and how, you know, whether it was civil war or whether it was standing up against racism, how we've had uh, legendary teachers here. So Roar Like a Goddess became me finding my huddle circle worldwide beyond India and beyond, and then not just grieving, but then having this mischievous last laugh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, it's not your last laugh, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thought. And I'm, I'm really contemplating, you know, I think the patriarchy has been so strong that it's only natural that most of us have internalized misogyny, and we don't even know that. Like, that's a blind spot to us. How do we find that within ourselves and root it out? Yeah. So example, it's a great question.
1: Nobody has asked me that. And I think this takes my discussion further. I should write a blog on this also. Because often we don't know. We mm-hmm. don't know. And that's part of the conditioning. Like we don't know. Because when I came from my progressive family full of great ideas. I didn't know how vulnerable and susceptible I was until I met people in the family of my marriage where I walked into who attacked me left, right, and center to know that how weak I was. So I wish I had had a checklist before choosing a partner or before getting married, before saying yes, even to an arranged marriage, whatever, you know? So if I look at three bold archetypes, let's look at Durga, our quick, check in if I am roaring like Durga or not, is that Durga knew she was not unafraid to express her anger or own it. And I talk in my book about unconscious anger, which is really just entitled foolishness. But then I talk about conscious anger which we must experience if we've been violated. And I talk about different boundaries and when it's appropriate and how the goddess showed that she was really conscious of her boundaries and her clarity. And then we also talk about, I also talk about super conscious anger, which is when your conscious anger takes on a new turn for the whole world. Like, you got, like the Me Too movement, like you got to be angry, not just for you. You got to share, not just for you. But now the whole planet depends on you for being open and transparent. So I feel like super conscious anger allowed me to, to write this book and to be vulnerable and talk about my own pain and talk about where I felt like I had inwardly, I had internalized self-rejection because others were rejecting me right? But it's the anger because it's anger that makes us change things. Like, you know, when we get Mm -hmm. angry with how we're eating, that we get onto a new diet plan. When we get angry with our own body, that we start doing asanas, Mm -hmm. we get on the mat, you know, when we're angry with our own anxieties when we start deep breathing. So anger is like a energy changer, a shifter, Mm -hmm. And so anger is important and anger is a protective emotion. But so many religions allow men to be angry. But if a woman is angry, she's called a bitch, a hag and all those names that they don't come to me. But I've written about them in my book. I've quoted some other author who's gone into details about the woman's anger. So black people can be angry. If they're angry, they're dangerous, they're bad, they're illegal. It's illegal. Women can't be angry because then an angry woman is not a woman to begin with. Her fertility, her sexuality, her charm can be questions. You know, if you're a spiritual teacher, you can't be angry because you've lost your, you know, your nuts. You're crazy.
0: You you should be just peaceful, oming away all the time. That's what I wanted to ask you. I think so many of our listeners are teachers of yoga, Ayurveda, You know, there's almost after I've had a bout of anger with my faculty or with a student, I have this shame and guilt like, oh, my gosh, I shouldn't I shouldn't have anger. I should be above that. How would you work with me to help me understand that that's okay to protect myself?
1: If we look at the Indian gods and goddesses, like which the the yogic teacher, like Shiva, or, or Shakti, and all these teachers, you know, they have their mudras of abaya mudra, which is where I'm holding my hand and fear not mudra, like, you know, don't worry, or the giving mudra, you know, what you ask, you shall receive. But in the background, they have a snake wrapped around them, or they're holding a lasso, or they're holding a spear, or, a, you know, because that's in the background. So it's a perfect, the the deity is a perfect meditation on how we should be. We should, by by first nature, be soft and peaceful and kind of... um, adaptable. And also there is a dharma, which I talk about in my book, Sovereign Self, accommodative, kshanti, K-S-S-S-S-T-N-T-I. Not only shanti peace, but kshanti, like people are silly and goofy and ignorant. So we shouldn't get irritable and we should accommodate them most of the time. But if they are violating dharma, if they are violating dharma for you, your loved ones, your dependees, or for the planet, or for nature, or for the animals and trees who can't protect themselves, then you have to experience your anger. And then you have to let that anger inform you not to become violence, because violence is a high level choice that If you're, you know, in the police or the army, you have to take it, but not, but at least your anger should allow you to speak differently, straightforward manner, address the situation, and you should allow your anger to even, you know, allow some change in your usual manner of speaking. So if I were to speak to a student and say, that's really nice, that's wonderful, but if I feel like they're violating dharma, then I have to be able to experience my anger, otherwise I'm not in touch with reality, I'm bypassing. And then I have to allow that anger to say, excuse me, when you did that, I said, that's okay, but now on second thoughts, that's not okay. And I'd like to discuss this, otherwise you need to leave my kula now. That's that. You, you know, because I'm protecting all the other people, my other students, or whatever. you know, yes, I love it, um, so, so Durga gives us the permission to experience a divine rage. It's happening for a reason. And if you're a woman or you're a feminine gender identified being, or if you're a person of a color that is not mainstream or you're in, in a society that is not safe, then you need to especially value your rage. Mm. You don't let anybody take it away from you and ask it what it's telling you. And 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 remember that Durga represents that divine rage that becomes an agent for, for conscious change. Yeah. And then Lakshmi represents, you know, you've seen Lakshmi, you know, she's holding dollars and money. So she represents wealth. But then I kept thinking about it, and actually she represents the ultimate wealth comes from self-respect and from self-value. And for that, I went into her mythology, which is rarely talked about. She's always shown as a spouse of Vishnu, as a divine mother, divine father. But if you go deeper into the mythology, you find out that you know prior to meeting Vishnu, she has lived in different situations, and once she was living in the heavens, And she was behind the scene, goddess making heaven, heaven, like really a beautiful place to be at, you know, with wealth and prosperity and eternal spring. But then Indra, the king of gods, he did something that she felt was disrespectful to her. He tossed away a garland of flowers and she lives in every petal. So she felt tossed. Mm -hmm. And unlike us women who get tossed and then stay around to be tossed again or tossed again, Once was enough for her because she's a goddess, so she channeled rage. And then she left, so she made some difference. And when she left, all of spring went away from the heavens. People lost their health, their vitality, their happiness because Mm -hmm. Lakshmi is not there. It's only when they churned the ocean that she re-returned and she saw Vishnu. And among a host of eyes that were looking at her saying, hopefully Lakshmi will come to us and we'll become wealthy. Only Vishnu, the masculine deity looked at her and his eyes represented pure love, no need, Mm -hmm. no possessiveness, no greed, no emptiness that she was going to fill, just wholeness, wholeness met wholeness. And she put a garland on him and they became together forever. But Lakshmi could not have achieved this status as divine mother and be with her ultimate love who was her equal if she had not chosen to self-value herself. So this legend, I've known this for many years, and somewhere it has allowed me, Amy, to change agreements, change situations. People, you know, we get comfortable in situations, I change them. It's like, I'm not comfortable. I'm not finding the self-respect and the self-value, and I don't do it impulsively because I'm a yogi, I'm a yogini, so I won't do it impulsively. I'll give it many months of conscious consideration, and then in a super-conscious moment, I will get up and change all the agreements, period. People will blame me, complain, bewail. it's over. It's over. New situations, greater self-value, new friends, new partnerships. And I know that I've not done anything wrong because my dharma spine gets stronger because of it.
0: So so resonating with this so clearly. yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's it's time we women had this conversation. And and guess what happened in India when my first marriage? I was told to smile like Lakshmi, to give children like Lakshmi, to cook food like Lakshmi, to sweep the house like Lakshmi, because Lakshmi is the giver of gifts to Mm -hmm. all these entitled patriarchal people. Just give gifts, keep smiling, keep pretending that you are this glamorous goddess who can just be sexual and domesticated at the same time and be the house help on the on the side too (laughs) uh,
0: without giving her the dignity yes
1: (laughs) yes so i brought you know i I talk about these kind of legends uh, really you know that were less exposed but they are there but so for you you asked how can we know if you are internalizing misogyny or not, well, are you self-valuing yourself? Mm-hmm. And and how many times have you forgiven someone? And is your forgiveness easy? And then in the Lakshmi section, I talk about things like yes, it's good to be content, and you know, women's nature is to be content because we are childbearers. But is your contentment containment now? I mean mm-hmm. can contained because of society's conditioning. Yes, it's good to be generous. And I talk about how the Vedas talk about unconditional generosity. But then I also quote Bhagavad Gita, which talks about the right kind of generosity versus the foolish kind of generosity. Mm. And so I quote. You know, the types of generosity so that we can do a checklist of wait, this is not generosity, this is rescuing behavior, this is codependence, or, this is or not being taken advantage of taken advantage of. And finally, with Saraswati, she is often shown as a goddess sitting playing her lute, a musical instrument known as Veena and she's always wearing white, which represents sattva or purity, which is all fine. And she's sitting on a white swan or a white lotus. And she always gives such serenity and she is the Mahayogini. She's the goddess of the Veda. She's the goddess of speech. She's the goddess of higher intelligence. And she's a goddess that I'm, you know, you and I were dependent on her for our everyday dharma, being Mm -hmm. teachers, podcasters women of knowledge. But then I went into her mythology. And here's what I found, Amy. I was shocked. I I found that once when she was out and about in goddess land, awakening people, her partner, Brahma, had organized a fire ritual and she was delayed. And in, in the Indian mythology or Indian culture, you can't, if you're married, you can't really do the ritual without your partner being with you. So Indra, the king of gods, who's kind of like an ambitious opinionated person who just gives his advice unsolicited said, why don't you just replace her with another goddess? They're all the same. Like a woman is objectified, change this body with another body. And Brahma didn't do that as yet, but at least he listened to this advice and Saraswati walked in with people talking about how she can just be replaced by another body. She didn't lose it externally. She was very peaceful, but in a very peaceful way, she said, you cannot replace me and I am offended. And I'm not going to be part of this ritual. And she left. She stayed in the marriage, so I kind of feel like it's like this open-ended marriage. But Saraswati does her own thing. So to me, it's about if you're in a marriage, whether it's of equals, like Lakshmi is with Vishnu or not, if you're in any partnership, where it's a creative partnership, Brahma is the creator and she's his muse, that's fine. They're together. But she does her own things. And I write in a funny way about how Saraswati is never seen on goddess baby showers and engagements, and they're never seen as a couple. She's like really doing her own thing, and that's why she's playing her music. And I really feel that's the kind of partnership I enjoy with my partner, even though my partner, my husband, has not done what Brahma did to her, like try to replace her. But, you know, he's a chef and he's cooking or enjoying something and i'm writing my book or i'm meditating like we're doing different things in the same household so when we meet we meet from our happiness our fullness but not from this need to change each other you know profession and and as a woman I don't cook, and my husband is the main person who cooks in our home, which is quite routine, but I've still heard women picking those extra tabs. You know, they they do all the work outside, then they come home, then they cook, and they pick up more after their children or their partner. Well... You know, Saraswati archetype then means really honing into your Swadharma or your propensity. I'm a spiritual teacher. The whole universe co conspired to make me a spiritual teacher. Well, that's going to get my maximum attention more than my marriage or my in laws or my neighbors or a cocktail party invitation from, you know, someone five streets down the road. That's not what I do. While being in the world in the society in a marriage in a conventional setup
0: does that amy love that and i I just have Uh one question do you think saraswati took that pain of abandonment with her and and kind of transformed it into wisdom or yes yes so
1: she faced her trauma but she didn't do it by falling apart this is where she used knowledge I talk in the book about how she faced her trauma. She Mm -hmm. faced her abandonment, but then she left. And then what did she do when she's playing the music? She's really flowing love towards herself. Mm. And that's where in the, in the book, Roar Like a Goddess, I talk about how I had abandoned a part of me, you know, the the divorce part of me, the rejected 20 something part of me, the failed part of me, I didn't consciously abandon her, but you know, you kind of move on in life. So then in the book, I brought her out and she comes out of me with dark circles and she's all withered and rejected. And then I hold her and I bring her as much respect as a 55-year-old celebrated author and teacher is getting. So I bring her out. So so when she's playing her music, it's not just the Saraswati we see, but the rejected part of her is right there. She is representing radical self-acceptance and self-love, and using higher knowledge to remember that she is more than just a spurned wife.
0: Yeah, it makes me think like she has defined who she is from the inside and out. Those are the words she has defined,
1: and and she didn't even like. Leave the partnership. That's all I find that too fascinating. Mm. It's like some, like you know how you could be in a partnership pro- personal or professional, where some things are working and yeah. some things are not. So she kind of made it work for her. Yeah. Like, you know, what works for her?
0: She she could negotiate. I, I think like a that. lot of women that I work with in mm-hmm. yoga therapy, they're somewhere between Lakshmi just saying, well you know, I'm out of here versus Saraswati. Like, well, could I stay and have financial security, but mainly get my emotional needs met for my children and my, Mm -hmm. my women friends and family, like, you know, it's, they're, they're really teetering back and forth and there's the Durga anger.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But instead of the, but now they can stay in a situation But the the next level invitation is don't teether back and forth. Play your music. Have some Mm. fun. Like let's make it conscious that you may not get the perfect partner like Brahma was, you know, is a male god de- deity in Hinduism. So it's not like he was an evil character. But it's like how even good good men can sometimes get influenced when they're all drinking together. Mm. <laughs> you know, when all the men, are, all the boys are drinking, then they, they or, think or of the boys' club at work, the I mean. boys' club at work, and then they, they 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 crack some jokes or they say things that are not exactly something. Respectful, So it's not like Brahma was thinking of replacing Saraswati, but he had guessed who was who was suggesting
0: to him brazenly to do that. Isn't, I just have to stop there for a minute because I've been in this situation professionally where there are men being very disrespectful to me as a 50-year-old woman who's been a college professor for 25 years. Like I'm not a little girl, but the men in the group are acting like I am. And I even feel a little bit not so happy with the men watching it happen. Even though maybe they didn't say anything, they allowed it to happen. They allowed the sexual harassment. They allowed the disrespect. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't really have time anymore for that. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: I think uh, "Time's Up" is another hashtag movement going on, and. This is the passive uh, supporters of patriarchy, men and women too, who don't speak up. Right. And in, if I had not brought in the term patriarchy, if I had just kept it about the goddesses and how it's an invitation, and let's all just come around and sing, maybe this book can be even more popular, But mm-hmm. right? I just couldn't be that passive person anymore saying this doesn't exist. And, and I didn't want to pretend like I've not gone through it. And I appreciate you being honest about how you've been, you know, we've all been, you know, dealing with it. I saw an interview of the former CEO of Pepsi and I'm forgetting her name, an Indian woman. And I can't believe I'm forgetting her name, but she's very famous. And she was talking about how she's a CEO of Pepsi and she's coming back at like a at 2am at night. And her own mother is at home, her mother, not her mother-in-law, calls her to say, while you're coming, when are you gonna be home? Like as if she's wasting her time and then the kids need you, blah, blah, blah. And when you're on your way home, pick up a can of milk while her husband is at home sleeping in the bed. So she, she shares about how she had to, her work was not taken seriously. Her stress was not taken seriously, and she had to fill the need for that can of milk while the man in the house was asleep. And her own mother was, mm-hmm. was not supportive of her because her culture sees her as the provider of milk and children in the household. And to not be comfortable with such people in our lives is, I think, a goddess thing to do, or at least to note that where am I getting the support, where am I not? I think we women have to change the conversation and more more talks in women leaderships and more organizations run by women and more countries headed by women would be a welcome uh, change. And initially these women would behave in patriarchally conditioned manner, but gradually, men and women and people of non-binary genders, we all have a connection with the divine feminine because we are all children of that divine mother. And we will all be able to flow greater wholeness, greater flexibility, and greater opportunity for everyone. So I think there's a tilting towards the masculine way of leadership, Mm -hmm. criticism, commentary, narrative, and it all needs to be a little balanced, I feel. Earlier, I used to get a little intimidated by such men mm. uh, in the spiritual world, especially the monks and uh, the ones who said, I've zipped up my genitals. Look how holy I am. Look at me. I'm celibate. Woo-hoo. <laughs> now I'm like, you have a problem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you, you say know,
1: that? Waiters don't ask you to be celibate. It's a total choice. You're just trying to show off like how, you know, and then we all know how that goes, right? Mm-hmm.
0: So now are I'm you, like... Are you outspoken? At, if, if you see an injustice or someone not respecting you, do you speak up in the moment? If somebody is not respecting me or someone in front of me, I will speak up.
1: I will not scream, but I will scream if I have to, but I will speak up. I will call it out. And I used to not. It has been a training. It has been the superconscious anger and conscious anger that I have been doing. And you know, I talk about how anger informs you and then what you do with it is a second choice. So it's not like I'll pick up a rock and hit someone. What I do with it, is I choose to call out. I may do it in that moment or I might do it half hour later or I might send an email. Mm-hmm. But I will take action. Otherwise, I cannot roar. My roar will be damaged, and I have worked all my life to reclaim my roar. And then when I say it, because I'm a female and I'm a I'm a healthy, functional female, I will say it in my feminine way. I don't, I won't pretend to be neutral. Like I really respect my emotions, Amy. I might have tears in my eyes. Uh, My voice might be shaky, but I will say it. It's getting less shaky Mm. with practice. Yeah,
0: yeah. I had a moment this week where I needed to speak my truth, and my voice shook the whole conversation, and I was a little embarrassed, but I thought in the past, I wouldn't have spoken my truth. So this is a step towards... Huge. ...sovereignty. (laughs) Huge. I must applaud you. I've had really
1: shaky conversations but they have taken me very far Mm. so yeah
0: Yeah. well let's pull up your new book which is on pre-order right now called roar like a goddess when is it going to come out it's coming out on september
1: 6 and um, yeah very excited about it
0: well, I, I, for one, am getting off this call and ordering it. Where can we order it from?
1: Everywhere people order books, Barnes & Nobles, Amazon, Indie Books, Bookshop, Sounds True Itself. And I wanted to share that when you order this book, Amy, I hope you order the audio book too, because when I recorded the audio book, it was unhinged. Like um, my publisher, Sounds True and their audio team allowed me to just speak off the cuff. Mm. And I want to share this with you and it may sound a little strange, but I felt like the goddesses were present and sometimes I would have tears running down me. And, and I spoke so in connection with that truth And then I found that there were these two male recording artists. And when I was crying, they were crying. When I was raging, they were raging. (laughs) So we had
0: quite an experience, uh, quite a dance creating that. And and I think the vibration of the goddesses speaking through you, the literal vibration coming out of you, penetrating each of us listeners, I, I actually think that is a very different experience than reading it on a page on a book
1: yeah like reading it is helpful because we want to make notes and you know make our own thing but then listening would be like activating awakening that goddess because that power that shakti dwells within each one of us and it is said in our tradition that she gets awakened by storytelling and Mm -hmm. by teachers who are communing with the goddess so I heard it through storytelling from the village bard or my mother telling me the stories and now I tell the stories. Yeah, Something shifts for us because mythology is an eternal story in our collective unconsciousness. And when that is awakened, what awakens with us is all the symbolism and deep knowledge encoded in those stories. So those who have heard this podcast and heard the story of Lakshmi choosing self-respect or Saraswati embracing all of herself and filling up her own gaps with her own soul music and and Durga not fearing uh, her own rage but using it as speaking power to truth, then something's going to shift in them. It happened with me Uh, when I heard it from my teacher, from my mother, from the one village bard who used to say very dramatically, you know, my DNA
0: changed. It's just that. Your epigenetics, little switches started to flip. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the last thing I want to point out before we finish today is there's also a documentary coming out by Sounds True called Mystics Today. Can you tell us a little bit about that and when that will be out?
1: not exactly sure when that will be out but probably sometime in september october november time frame Mm -hmm. but this is a documentary in which tammy simon the legendary publisher and host of insights at the edge podcast sits down and talks to six spiritual teachers who she has found in her 45 plus year of career as the mystics of today, the teachers of today who are going to make a difference. And I was happily surprised and and remembered how Baba had said I would make a difference when Tammy said she would like to fly over to where I live in San Francisco Bay Area and come and spend a whole couple of days with me recording my teachings on sovereign self and the goddess and featuring me as a mystic. And so the episode is called Roar Like a Goddess. And Mm. the best way to be in touch about this is to sign up with Sounds True also. So you get their newsletters and stuff. Mm. You'll be informed of it.
0: Yeah. And if anyone wants to study with you, are there any programs coming up soon? I see you have a timeless Vedic wisdom. I have a wisdom school.
1: And if you go on the website and you go to the study tab, it will lead you to that. I have also founded a different foundation, more technologically enabled, called the Awakened Self Foundation, where I live stream courses, where my team live streams courses and webinars and retreats. And now we have students worldwide who are studying the deep, deep Ayurveda with me from the scriptures, from the tradition. And then I teach some yoga philosophy. And there is a teaching of yoga for Atma Bodha, for self-realization that my guru Baba has given me. But Amy, I've not had the time as yet to bring it out in the world in a formal sense. Maybe at a separate time, I'd like to converse with you and seek your help. Just so busy with so many things. But in the future, I would like to bring that very deep, slow,
0: deeply spiritual yoga teachings from baba to my students i would love to support you in that birth it you know it it seems that there are so so much shakti packed into one one little body of yours and it's going to take decades for the different parts of you to emerge
1: yeah yeah baba planted some awesome like like super productive seeds in me, like of Ayurveda, so much Ayurveda, ecology of Ayurveda, clinical medicine of Ayurveda, philosophy of Ayurveda, history of Ayurveda, I have a half written book on that. Spirituality, the Adhyatma of Ayurveda, the gods, the seven gods of Ayurveda, I have half written books on it. Now it's too much, it takes a whole lifetime to do that. Then if you go to yoga, then yoga philosophies of Yajnavalkya, of Patanjali, of the Bhagavad Gita, Then Baba's yoga for Atma Buddha. it's like, wow. Then Advaita, all the Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, then the divine feminine. So what I did, Amy, was I decided to be sovereign and Saraswati-like in it. I said, I'm not going to control all of this. The right people will come in my life, the right opportunities. I just write, show up, teach the students who come in my life. Some of them are beginners. Some of them are celebrated teachers. They come and learn. And we have a beautiful honoring relationship. And all is well because I don't live with an ambition to be the guru of the world. I am a roaring goddess and I sometimes enjoy gardening, walking my dog, (laughs) cooking something with my husband. Yeah.
0: So I think it's meant to be. It's so clear that you are part of a householder lineage as well as a spiritual teacher
1: yes that is part of my family we are known as grahasta sadhu sadhu means one who has a samadhi sama means balance or um, sublime mm-hmm. transcendental dhi mind and mm-hmm. grahasta means one who is a householder yeah. who is paying the bills and uh, taking the dog for a walk and taking out the trash and yeah. and it keeps life very balanced i personally yeah. feel that if you are a grahastha sadhu, and you need not be married to be a grahastha sadhu. If you live in the world, if you're paying your taxes, if you have neighbors, you are a grahastha sadhu. And the true monastic tradition doesn't happen by establishing ashrams and living in them as a monastic person. If you're a true monastic person, we should know about you. You shouldn't have a website. (laughs) You're a true monastic (laughs) person. Then you should disappear in the in the Himalayas or in your forest or in your cottage or in your home and be inside you, yeah. so really, we are all grass the sadhu, some expect some some acknowledge it, and the others kind of put some coating on it to say, "Well, I live in an ashram, so I'm different,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> but an ashram is like any other household,
0: yeah so Acharya Shunya. I'm wondering if we could just finish with a moment of silence and listening and see if there's any last word that any of the goddesses would like to share as we close today. Could we do that? I'd like that. Yeah, I just received the word for all the yoginis out
1: there and all the yogis. And Durga says do the work of forwarding these teachings but do it with power. Do it with your soul power, your shakti intact. Never compromise beyond a point. And when you stand erect in your shakti, I shall come and give you more shakti. I shall complete you. And Lakshmi says, do the work, but do it with always an eye towards self-respect and self-value. That is the surest path to abundance. Don't wear yourself out. Don't tear yourself apart. The abundance comes from this, the seed of self-love and respecting your own physical and emotional boundaries. And finally, Master Aswati says to all our listeners, The world shall never fulfill you. The world is a mirage. It is changing every moment. You are fulfilled inside yourself. Look within, meditate, contemplate, and remember that you are a sovereign being.
0: And let your inner music emerge from that place. Thank you. Thank you so much, Acharya Shunya. I want to thank Acharya Shunya for coming with her whole heart today and just showing up authentically, showing us what a strong woman looks like mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. A woman who's willing to get quiet and listen within and and be self determined through her, her own dharma after acharya shunya and i finished our conversation we both admitted to each other that being in this world of yoga where there's a, a constant hamster wheel of Create a program, get people interested, certify people. Those people take your 20, 30, 40 years of of wisdom and and recreate it as their own. Then you're on to the next thing, the next book to your marketing again. Like it's exhausting. And and we admitted to each other that want to be nice when when we can just be quiet and be with the teachings period. Just study ourselves and let the teachings live through us without this constant pressure cooker that the yoga world has become. And, and what would that look like? How can we sustain ourselves if we're not on the flywheel? So this is something I'd like to to leave all of you with, I, I know so many of you have contemplated this in your own life. You you came into yoga because it healed you, it made you feel happy and healthy and whole, and then you thought everyone needs to know about this. And then you got in the grinder and and maybe even lost some of your own joy around the teachings while in this grinder. And I talk to people all the time that say, maybe I just need to to stop this and go do something else. It, it's a lot, or maybe I should just retire. And I, I can understand that, but I also think it's a very precious human life that we have, and we came to this place with these people. We're blessed with the teachings and it's it's not actually an option to just say, I'm done. I'm, I'm gone. I don't want to do this. We, we are in some way required to pass that on through our children, through our colleagues, through the people at the grocery store or the gardeners or our loved ones. We will pass this on. It's not just going to stay inside of us, but I think we can all relate to that feeling of just wanting to go inward and starting to de-link from the outside world and the rajas and tamas that that creates in our mind and, and really preferring a more sattvic nature. So I'll just leave you with that, reflecting on that for yourself. And, and what does it mean to you to be a yoga teacher, a yoga therapist, a yoga practitioner? What does it mean and And can you find this balance in your life where there's enough internal focus and nourishment and there's also this giving to the world who needs us more now than ever? Thank you for listening today. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content and that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, Contact us at the email welcome at the optimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate dot And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz.